Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet strode about Los Muchachos, The Boys, Willie Falcone and Salvador Magluta. Have you all seen the new documentary series on Netflix called Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of Miami by Billy Corbin, Alfred Spellman, and Dave Sipian? If you have not, you need to pause this podcast and go watch that series. You won't be able to stop. You'll binge it. It's so good. It's about the rise and fall of the biggest cocaine traffickers in history, Willie and Sal. And it it goes through the many legal dramas, the trials galore. There are so many great trial stories. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Billy and Alfred, who made this great series and who also happened to produce this podcast. Uh, we have a great time talking about all of the ins and outs, the players, the trial lawyers, prosecutors, defense lawyers, um, what happens, how the case gets tried. And I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't watched it yet. So go watch it uh, and then listen to this discussion. I think you'll really enjoy hearing about the ins and outs of the Willie and Sal trial and the drama. In For the Defense next, I get to speak with Billy and Alfred. Stay tuned. So welcome, uh, Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. It's a real pleasure of mine to get to introduce my friends uh, and speak to my friends from over 20 years now. And they're the producers of this podcast. So uh, we get the double whammy of the producers of the podcast, but more importantly, um, they've made a great series about Willie and Sal, Los Muchachos, the boys. I get to speak to the current boys, the current muchachos of Miami, uh, Billy and Al. And and um, let's talk about Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you for establishing all the conflicts of interest up front. Of course, that's what I do. <laughs> that, that's what I do, Billy. So the first trial really had everything. And I'm going to assume that folks have watched the show. If you haven't, watch it um, and then listen to the podcast. But the first trial literally had every possible thing we could have. All-star defense team, snitches, drugs, money, sex, acquittals, bribe jurors, um, biting strippers. You could have spent six episodes just on the 91 trial, the 91 case. So I imagine there was a lot of great stories that didn't make it into the series. So, so can, can you tell us some of the really great stuff that, that didn't make it in, anything that stands out? Well, I'll say that, you know, we are, so just to establish our bona fides here, neither, neither Billy or I uh, went to law school, but in a lot of ways, this case was our criminal law education. Um, 91-60-60 can be taught, uh, it should be taught as a case study in law schools uh, for how to try a case or in certain instances, I guess, how not to try a case. Um, there were, it was, it was the only case that I, that I've ever read the full trial transcript of, uh, and I was just fascinated by it. I remember going down to the clerk's office and saying, I need a, I need to get the full transcript of a trial. And they're like, okay, what is it? And I said, that, uh, well, it's an older case from 1991. The guy looks at me and goes, 91, 60, 60. I go, yeah. <laughs> so that, that code, that case number is famous down in the clerk's office. And there was just the, the seeing the dream team, you know, it's important to kind of put this in time and place. And I, I we, we do it in the doc, but I think it's just important to kind of level set here. This trial started two weeks after the OJ Simpson acquittal and the entire country 
basically spent 10 months watching a first degree murder case uh, unfold on, on television like a soap opera. Billy and I, I remember we were in, we were in t- 11th grade, I guess going into 12th grade at the time of the OJ trial. And we were OJ trial junkies. We were in high school making short films together, but you know, you'd run home from school to catch the, to catch the OJ trial. And so, you know, having, having this trial begin on the heels of that, you know, criminal defense attorneys at that point, you know, you had your Johnny Cochran, your F. Lee Bailey, your Robert Shapiro were either reviled by a section of the country or beloved by a section of the country or people, I think like Billy and I were just like impressed with the criminal defense trial lawyer. So, Uh, This trial kind of starting on the heels of that, when you read the transcript, I think it's just kind of important to keep that in in your in your head, because I think everything that unfolded in this trial or a lot of that unfolded in this trial, um, you know, was was in one way or another kind of affected by the perception of the OJ trial. And I think to a large extent, the jurors perception of how the evidence was was presented in this case was affected by the OJ trial. And I think it's also important to remember that Willie and Sal allegedly spent about $25 million on their defense in this case from 91 through the, you know, the mid to late 1990s. And so there were attorneys and there were associates and there were paralegals, there were paralegals, there were uh, PIs, lots and lots of PIs and an extraordinary amount of, of legitimate legal work and private investigation work went into this case to the point where I think in in many of the uh, cross examinations, it's clear that the criminal defense attorneys knew more about the government's witnesses than the government themselves knew. Um, I mean, it was really quite a. Everybody talks about the dream team of the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, and 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 having a defendant that could financially kind of equal or at least take on the state of California. And here, I mean, I don't know what the U.S. government spent. Uh, pursuing that that first prosecution, but Willie and Sal spent twenty five million dollars. So if there were a defendant that could that could take on the the United States government, it was clearly these guys. I wonder how that twenty five million compares to what OJ spent on his dream team. I bet I bet it was close. Oh, you think that naked gun money uh, really added up there? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, probably. Did. I, I was in law school at the time in in uh, Dershowitz's class during during the OJ trial. I was fascinated with that one too. But we got to watch that one on TV. TV. We didn't get to watch this one on TV. It made it made a big difference for how it was covered. Of course, we had to rely on on Jim Defeat's, uh you know, New Times articles from from the trial every day. I, th- I think it makes a big difference. Obviously, the TV versus non TV. Uh, portion of it. That's why your documentary is so important, I think. Well, this is one of the challenges we've had. We, there are lots of stories that we'd love to tell, but obviously federal court cases, there's no coverage for it. You know, one of the things when Billy and I look at subjects to make a doc about, it's always, well, what are we going to be seeing, right? I mean, it's a visual medium. So when people are telling stories, you have to see something. And so one of the challenges we knew early on here uh, is we knew that there were going to be three three trials, right? It was, you know, 91-66, both the first and the second Magluda trials, and then the Moyer trial. And so having three federal trials and six episodes presented a very unique challenge um, to us as documentary filmmakers. And, and addressing that, we kind of bounced around a bunch of ideas and how we would deal with it. And ultimately, would we, would we, you know, do animations that would reenact particular sections of the, of the trial or cross examinations or, or opening and closing statements? So there was, a, there was a lot of thought given to it before we kind of landed on 
where we landed, which was essentially hiring an extremely talented uh, courtroom sketch artist named Jerome Lemenu, who was uh, in the 80s and 90s flown around the country by network news uh, teams to cover trials. He did the whole Noriega trial. And we reached him. He was teaching art in a suburb of Detroit, high school art. And we got in touch with him. He's retired now. We said, listen, would you like to uh, do some sketches for this documentary? We're going to animate these courtroom sketches. And he was all in. So it was a great thrill to work with somebody as talented as Jerome. And, and I think the treatment ended up working out pretty, pretty cool. I, I love the animations. I, it freaked me out at first when I saw the eyes starting to blink. I, I was I was thrown <laughs> back, but I, I loved it and, and thought it was great. Um, no, no offense to the hardworking courtroom sketch artists of the country, but but for a lot of them, the style, uh, their style is such that there's not a great or more than a passing resemblance to some of the participants. In fact, some of them look like that lady who painted over the Jesus painting, you know, like just, <laughs> just some of them have absolutely no resemblance whatsoever. So we had to find a, an artist whose style was such that it didn't look like caricatures, but it looked like the actual people. So we wouldn't confuse the audience and everybody would know, okay, this is, this, this is Albert Krieger and this is Roy Black and this is Sal Magluta and this is Willie Falcone. Uh, and so Jerome was just like, was perfect for it. And then we just kind of brought them, brought them to life a little bit. So you felt like you were in the courtroom during, during the federal trial. Loved it. Billy, is this the uh, most Miami of your films or no? Someone accurately described it on Twitter as unapologetically Miami. Uh, <laughs> right. Probably, probably every frame of the of the of the images and and every beat of the soundtrack are unapologetically Miami. Great. So, so I want to talk about who I think is the greatest of all time, not just in Miami, but but in the country as as the criminal defense lawyer, as the goat, Albert Krieger. Um, He's no longer with us. I, I miss the guy a lot. Um, wonderful man, lawyer, father, husband, great guy. I want to know, how did you get him to come on? Because um, it wasn't easy to get some of these guys to speak and, and to get Albert to come on must have been tricky. I'll start. So I went to high school at New World School of the Arts with Albert Krieger's grandchildren, um, Zach Lewis, Cammie Lewis, and Nina Lewis. And um, their mother, uh, Claudia Lewis, is Albert Krieger's daughter. And so uh, I called Claudia. That was the first thing I did and said, we want to interview your father for this documentary. And she helped connect us. Um, but it wasn't going to be a simple phone request. Um, Albert uh, summoned us, Alfred and I, to his home where he and his wife effectively auditioned us uh, and to determine whether or not he would agree to this interview. And it was intense. It was the, yeah. it was the, it was the Socratic method. It, it was very intimidating. We go down, we go down to Albert's condo. I think it was in Deering Bay at the time. And um, yeah. we go down there and, and uh, we meet with him and his, 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 his lovely wife. And we're sitting there in the living room and Albert's, you know, we're kibitzing about the case and going back and forth. And, you know, finally, we, you know, we, We'd love to interview you, you know, for this documentary that we're making. And, and by this point, I think the you had come, Cocaine Cowboys had already come out, obviously. The you had come out, I think, by this point. So we had a little bit of a reputation as, you know, that we were 
capable, but obviously this was this was quite a, a sensitive case. And as you point out, you know, we had been turned down by some of the other lawyers uh, involved by this point. So, uh, but Albert was definitely somebody we we really really wanted. He he takes a long look at Billy and I, and he says, "Well, he says, I tell you what, he says, um, do you know what the Bill of Rights are?" And I was like, "Well." Sure, they're the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And he says, if you can tell me all 10 of the Bill of Rights, tell me what they are, I will agree to do the interview. Now, again, Billy and I are not, <laughs> we have never been to law school. We are, you know, a little bit of armchair uh, amateur lawyers. We, you know, we get a kick out of a lot of true crime content. We're, you know, we're a little bit of aficionados, but by no means constitutional law scholars. But something kicked over in my brain. I, I went into kind of the, just the, the, the thousand yard stare. And I said, well, the First Amendment, uh, you know, we all know is religion, and press, assembly, and Two is right to bear arms. Three is quartering soldiers. Four is uh, is is uh, is a warrantless uh, is a is a uh, search and seizure. Five is uh, 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 you know self incrimination right yeah. trial by jury. And I just I just just rattled them all off. Even got nine right, which I never get right because it's always kind of conflated with ten. It seems kind of weird at the end. It's not neither kind of I'm real things. So I'm and impressed. I got all ten. I think Albert was too. And that, to this day, that is one of the the most precious memories of, of working on a project or getting somebody to agree to something uh, professionally. That that stands out. That's definitely top five. And true to his word, he did it. He did the interview because Alfred named all uh, ten uh, amendments of the Bill of Rights like that. So, so Alfred is the Sal of the group, and and you're the Willie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, is that it was. Well, I, 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 I'd like to think I would have gotten seven of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe eight, but I think I think three quartering soldiers not so relevant anymore. Um, nine and ten I often maybe conflate. So yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. Uh, nine and ten I often conflate. So I, I, I like to think I would have gotten seven or eight. I like to think my my con law professor Benton Becker, may he rest in peace, from the University of Miami. Uh, would have been on my shoulder, very pissed uh, as I as I struggled with the with, with with two or three of them. But Alfred just like took over. He just like just rattled them off. It was it was quite. I remember the you know the eyebrows raised on um, on Albert Krieger um, at the end of of the Tenth Amendment. <laughs> if, if Alfred wasn't able to do it, we, you might have gotten a devastating you know one of one of Albert's devastating. <laughs> Devastating. <laughs> so good. Um, so you get you get Albert to come on, which is a great get. But one of the things that that really surprised me when I was watching the series is you also got the the mock jury trial footage, and that is really um, sensitive, confidential stuff. And I was sort of shocked when I saw that pop up on the screen. I don't know if you can tell us how you got that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead, Bill. In 2011, was it? We did an interview with Ocean Drive magazine right after we had started working on this project. And we, we talked about Willie and Sal and Los Muchachos as a, a, a labor of love, a real passion project for us. And um, little did we know that in federal prison, Sal Magluta had a subscription to Ocean Drive magazine. Uh, where he read this article. And uh, as someone says in the documentary, there may be six degrees uh, of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami, there's only one or two degrees of Willie and Sal. And so <laughs> people reached out to me and said, Sal read the article and he'd love to talk with you about it. And we became pen pals for a time. I found myself 
uh, at his parents' home in Westchester, his mother making me cafecito, feeding me pastelitos, and going through family photo albums of Sal from his childhood in Cuba through the uh, power offshore powerboat racing days into the 90s. Um, and just, this was as a result, incidentally, this wasn't quick. This was as a result of years of, of correspondence and, and Sal wanting to help us get it right and have access to materials to be able to tell the story. And at some point down that road, we find ourselves in a um, storage unit, a walk-in storage unit, uh, floor to ceiling, 20 years worth of legal records, Sal's personal archive of documents, transcripts, videotapes, trial exhibits, audio tapes, like, you know, surveillance, uh, audio and video, just, it was extraordinary. And um, amongst the boxes and boxes and boxes of videotapes, VHS videotapes were the mock juries. And so, uh, and we knew what we were looking at relatively, uh, like almost immediately. Um, we didn't realize there had been three mock juries. But again, when you have the kinds of resources that we discussed, they expended on this trial. Um, this was quite, quite, uh, quite a find. And, and again, you could see they recreated the entire trial. I mean, they had written a, an opening statement for the U.S. Attorney's Office. They had uh, they, they had presented witnesses. They, I mean, it was an, an, an extraordinary uh, document and, and and video, no less, which is, of course, what we're. We're looking for, uh, as Alfred said, this is a visual medium. And when you have a role, which usually makes up a talking head interviews in a documentary, the question becomes, what is your B-roll? What are you seeing? you got to bring the receipts. You need archival materials and evidence and documents and photographs and videos. And, and this is how we, we came to obtain that. And, and why wouldn't Sal talk to you? Why couldn't you get Sal if he's willing to give you all this stuff? Could you talk to Sal through the phone and record that or no? Yeah, that was considered. And I, I think that Billy had several conversations with Sal that we were talking about how to how to make that happen. But obviously, uh, being out in Florence, Colorado is the most restrictive prison in the country. And Sal's time on the phone and what he was allotted was was very short. He was, he was obviously calling and staying in touch with family during this period. My understanding is that since Timothy McVeigh, on the eve of his execution, gave an interview to 60 Minutes, um, that was broadcast that had infuriated, I think, a lot of members of Congress. And there was a big crackdown after that at the Bureau of Prisons on on camera interviews for inmates. In fact, I don't believe there's been a single one conducted in a federal institution since uh, Bernie Madoff, I think, had participated in a podcast in much the same way that you just described by, by doing phone calls. But because the McVeigh thing had, had, had angered so many people, um, it's almost impossible. It's up to, of course, to the warden's discretion. But you know, wardens don't want to inconvenience themselves or the institution or compromise the safety or security, obviously. And so, um, you know, interview requests are just normally just turned down uh, at, at federal prisons almost in their entirety. Yeah, it's too bad. So so the dream team, um, Roy, Albert, Marty, um, Scott Srebnik, lots of great lawyers involved. And, and the case involves so many snitches, I think like 26 snitches in the first trial. And and from the from back in the day, I remember the coverage was basically the defense lawyers crushing these witnesses every day. I mean, absolutely annihilating them. Um, is that the sense that you guys got from making the movie? Is that on, on sort of a day to day basis during this long, long trial that the defense was scoring lots of points, or were these witnesses holding up? 
Well, I think, so you have to understand the, the 91-60-60 case. The case is really, um, you know, it's, it's a continuing criminal enterprise case. So it covers from 1978 to 1991. The thrust of the defense, there were, there were, there was two. Well, first of all, it was a statute of limitations defense that yes, Willie and Sal were big time drug traffickers in 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, but just outside of the statute of limitations is where they ceased their their drug trafficking. And to buttress that claim, these guys are an ESPN racing powerboats. They're internationally known sportsmen. If you are a drug trafficker, there's no chance you're going to be on ESPN bringing all this attention to yourself. So that was kind of the clip because there was no powder found. There was no you know, a stash house is seized full thousands of kilos or millions of dollars in cash found. This was a case that the government had that was built upon the testimony of cooperating witnesses uh, and a lot of circumstantial evidence surrounding their wealth. That was the other part of the government's case was was the massive amount of wealth and two guys who hadn't generated any W-2 income since 1978. One of my favorite details that didn't make it in the dock from the original trial is their accountant had been called to testify who had filed something called a Fifth Amendment tax return on their behalf, which I had never heard of. But apparently right, right. 1981, 1982, because it is a, it is a crime not to file a tax return, right? It's prima facie. You either do or you don't. If you don't file a tax return, that's a crime. So the tax returns were filed, but were left blank. And a note was attached that answering or filling this document out would uh, would incriminate myself. And so I plead the Fifth Amendment. And so there is going to be no information filed on this tax return. So that was something that I really got a big kick out of just in terms of a uh, the chutzpah of the defense of that. But that was the defense. So the other part of the case had to do, uh, as far as the government was concerned, were these ledgers that were found when Sal was arrested for Gorse. And the ledgers allegedly documented drug trafficking from, I think, 1988 to 1991. So obviously falling within the statute of limitations. And those ledgers were extremely dangerous to the defense because obviously they were predicating their defense on snitch testimony. Yeah, whatever these guys said they did back in 78, 79, sure they did it, but they weren't doing that within the past five or six years since, or five years since the indictment. The ledgers were a huge problem. Those ledgers, they those were initially on a Fourth Amendment motion were suppressed by uh, Judge Moreno, and then the government appealed and went all the way to the Supreme Court. That's one of the reasons why, though they were arrested in 91, uh, October of 91, they didn't go to trial until October of 95. That appeal went all the way to the Supreme Court. And eventually the ledgers were uh, were allowed to be introduced to trial. But that, I think, would, if you had talked to the defense attorneys, uh, you know, would probably be the biggest obstacle because that was their statute of limitations defense. So instead, they, they pivoted to this idea that all these guys are jumping on the bus, and they are looking for deals. And because, as Billy pointed out, they had so many investigators and they had so much time to research, they were pulling sentencing transcripts from these witnesses from two crimes ago, you know, and, and three crimes ago. And so they had all of the documentation on all of the witnesses, on everything that these people had done in their entire lives. And they were able to uh, to, to, to destroy them. It's, it's and and I think from, from talking to the... Uh, to, to some of the jurors, um, they they were not entirely persuaded by the witnesses. They did find the cross examinations withering, uh, and and they had discounted the vast majority of the testimony, but for maybe one or two of the cooperating witnesses that they found 
to be persuasive. So I think the the idea, and, and I think I think probably to an extent, some of the uh, criminal defense attorneys are probably in, in, well, they're probably bummed about the jury tampering for several reasons. Uh, not not the least of which is that they didn't really get it. They themselves didn't get a fair shake to see how this jury actually may have uh, you know may have voted uh, without the tampering. Um, I think that's right, Bill. Yeah, because I, I think the lawyers, the defense lawyers, really on a day-to-day basis believe they were winning the case. And that's why you saw some of the reaction, the difference reaction between, you know, the government who could not understand this verdict and the defense lawyers who, although surprised, I think really believe that they were beating these witnesses up pretty good. Krieger was cleared 20 plus years later when we interviewed him. You see him at the end of episode three, spoiler alert. He says about the government in that trial, even knowing, of course, what happened later, even in hindsight, he says they got their asses kicked. <laughs> I mean, that's and and he believes that to this. And, and he was very proud of the fact that I think some of those cross examinations, some of his in particular, were taught in, in law school uh, classes. He, he, he believed that that they were de- that they were devastating, yeah. devastating. And, and they were, um, you know, I think one of the other issues that really bugs a lot of lawyers is so much was made about these guys getting paid. And the government was really upset about it, about the lawyers getting paid. Of course, when snitch lawyers get paid, um, the prosecutors don't seem to mind all that much. They're, they seem to be okay with uh, uh, one of the snitch lawyers getting money to uh, have their client testify against William Salts when you want to fight that the prosecutors get bent out of shape about money going to the fighting lawyers. Well, I think <laughs> I, I think the lawyer is that I, a know, question? I, <laughs> it's a discussion, Billy. I would say, I, listen. I think that you know um, your profession, David, as you know, does not uh, typically poll very highly with the American public in terms of uh, regard uh, and uh, and perhaps uh, we're not uh, winning friends. Exactly, exactly. But I think that what. There's a principle involved uh, that Albert, I think, did very, very well. I forget if it was during opening or closing. And of course, as, as, as most of your audience will kind of have a variation on this, I'm sure, as you, as you guys all do, and, and, and women all try cases. Um, but what I found as a layman just particularly persuasive is Albert saying, look, if I were to go out and offer a guy on the street who I know to have some good information and, and truthful information, I offer him $5 to come in and testify. I'm guilty of bribery. I can go to prison for that. The government can give somebody, can grant somebody something priceless, their freedom. And a lot of times during the case, uh, it was it was kind of dropped directly on Chris Clark's head. Uh, the attorneys kept saying that over and over. And I think you know, I think they, they, they partially played on, on Clark's age. I think Clark was 33, 34 at the time. And of course, the defense attorneys were much more experienced. Uh, you know, obviously, Pat Sullivan's at the table, second chair. But the, the defense attorneys made a point just of pointing at Chris Clark and saying, only Chris Clark separates you from another 20 years sitting in prison. Isn't that so? And gosh, I mean, that is just, uh, that is just fundamentally, just to the layman, a very persuasive state. Uh, in terms true. of what your incentive is to, to, to come and, in and testify. And I will say, and I don't know how common this is, you know, obviously the point that they were making that these guys had no legitimate means of income yet led this lavish lifestyle. 
that was the thing. And, and it was not dissimilar in the, the Miguel Moya, the subsequent Miguel Moya trial. Uh, it really seems to be this almost this, this, this creepy game of class warfare on the part of, of the prosecutors, where essentially they're, you know, have a bunch of working class uh, jurors who, who couldn't even manage to get themselves at a jury duty. Uh, guilty as charged uh, that, you know, <laughs> we who, won't get into that, Billy, who are, who are sitting there. It's another podcast. Go, another go, podcast. To the, go to the Fifth Amendment that, on that. <laughs> another, yeah. So uh, but but they and but here they're showing, look at these guys, convict them because they had money, convict them because they spent lavishly, convict them because they have more money than you do. Never paid. T- I mean, again, that's either a crime or they're really playing on the emotions of the of you know working class people who are sitting there in a jury box going yeah fuck these guys uh, you know for, for having all this this money and but yet at the same time they had a lot of difficulty beyond a reasonable doubt this is according to the jurors kind of drawing a straight line from this money to to drug trafficking to actual cocaine right right you, you know you guys talk about defense lawyers not making lots of friends and not being the most popular one of the things that was very unpopular was the ad that was taken out in the champion in prison life. And you guys talk a lot about it in the series. I, I have to say, you know, I, I get it um, why, why people were upset about it. But if the government's theory was that Willie and Sal, mostly Sal, ordered the murders, right? If that's the government's theory, then the ad did not lead to the hits. And so, you know, Sal knew who all the witnesses were. Um, the government, of course, goes through every piece of paper, email, text message, uh, beep, uh, you know, paper. They're allowed to do that. Nobody complains. If the defense tries to get information about who the witnesses are, people freak out. Um, so so did, did that ad cross the line? I mean, was, was that a real... Uh, ethical issue in your guys' mind? I mean, you know, I'm interested in, in your opinion on it. Well, I think, well, there's two parts because obviously there's the first is the, is the ad in the, in the criminal defense lawyers magazine. And then there's the ad in the prison magazine. So I would say that maybe one would create maybe less of a perception of a problem than another. Uh, but you're right. And what this is born out of, of course, is the idea that a defendants would be able to kind of match the resources of the federal government and the and the feds not being used to that. Uh, you know, there was a lot of also, and again, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far afield on this because it's it's my own just kind of personal sense of 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 reading a lot of this and having studied this case. But there seem to be a lot of head games being played here. Um, you know, the defense attorneys seem very very sophisticated in their approach and their tactics. And I think with the combination of the paralegals and the private investigators and this army of investigators that that the defense had in this case, that it really made the prosecution, um, you know, uh, kind of just constantly looking behind them and looking to see what, what the defense was doing and what they were up to. Uh, there was a there was a guy at one point, uh, there was an investigation because the U.S. Marshals were being photographed coming in and out or how they were escorting prisoners. There was a lot of controversy. So a lot of it seems to be kind of a, a almost a psychological head game in some ways that the defense 
was playing to psych out the prosecution in some ways um, in terms of how they were making their inquiries and how they were treating uh, some of these potential uh, uh, witnesses or cooperators and how they were spreading the word. So, you know, was it effective? I mean, uh, you know, as Billy said, I think that we all would have really liked to have seen what would happen with a true level playing field here, because I think it very well could have. Been. Um, but to get to your good specific question about whether it's ethical or not, again, I'll, I'll leave that to the experts. I'm not going to make a judgment on, on whether it's ethical. I think as a as a as a civilian looking at it, like I said, I think you could probably make an argument that the ad in prison life is of a magnitude different than maybe taking out an ad in a criminal defense. Uh, Forget term. the experts. I want to hear if Billy thinks. <laughs> it's Bill, uh, I think that the distinction is important. There wasn't one ad. There were two ads and there were two ads in in two separate periodicals. Um, and I understand that they were looking for information, but the flip side of your, um, your argument, uh, David, that you said kind of flies in the, the government's theory of the homicides that sort of flies in the face of this being a hit list would, uh, is that an alternate theory was that because there were Colombian hitmen who were, uh, as you know, subsequently arrested. Um, it became a struggle to trace any of them back to Falcone or Magluda. Uh, but the idea or the alternate theory of the homicides was that perhaps uh, the Colombians, the suppliers for Willie and Sal, in an effort unbeknownst to them, but to protect them and to perhaps prevent Willie and Sal from identifying them or whatever the case may be, basically went freelance, kind of went, you know, uh, uh, decided to dispatch with these witnesses um, independent of Willie and Sal, but to indirectly help them and themselves. If that's the case, then then the ad would have been very useful, I guess, in identifying who some of those people were. And in fact, some of those people who were not in custody, but who were out and about did end up dead. Yeah. You know, there are so many offshoots to the case, the murder investigations, obviously, and, and you talked about conflicts. I guess I didn't tell, tell one conflict at the beginning, which is uh, I represented Yubi Ramirez, who, uh, you know, great story. It should be episode seven, I think, um, you know, accused, uh, convicted and sentenced to life. And then we got her sentence reduced uh, to time served of 10 years. One of the offshoots that that was amazing to me is the whole Moya uh, bribery case. And, you know, the guy gets a hung jury in trial number one. I mean, talk about a punch to the gut for the government. I mean, his defense is an only in Miami defense. I'll let you guys describe it. And then he the jury hangs. It's 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 unbelievable. Well, I'll let often tell the defense, but one of my favorite stories from Paul McKenna is during deliberations, uh, everybody gets gathered in the court back in the courtroom because a note has come from from the jury uh, for a person. The note was simply help with an exclamation point. That was the that was the entirety <laughs> of the note. From the, I can only imagine the judge having to call everybody back in. We have a note from the jury. We have the, we have this whole and that is the that is the four corners of the note. H E L P exclamation point. I mean, I, I love it. I got to get that framed for my office. <laughs> a, a, cr a criminal defense lawyer once told me that uh, if you were going to be indicted for a crime and your intent is to go to trial, there is no better district to go to trial in than the Southern District of Florida, because you will have a jury pool who will be much more skeptical, 
I think, uh, than, than perhaps other places in the country towards the, the United States government's uh, uh, take on a, on a or an, uh, allegations of a crime. In this case, I, you know, this is one of those stories that you just kind of shake your head. To me, this is, this, you know, if you ask me kind of what's my favorite nugget of Miami-dom in this entire story, it is the, it is the first day, the opening statements of Moya's first trial. So the Fed's mount a, a case, obviously begin investigating the jury. And they, they noticed pretty quickly that uh, uh, Miguel Moya, who is a ramp mechanic at MIA, making 30 something thousand dollars a year, all of a sudden is spending a lot of money buying properties and boats and going on trips and gambling and yada, yada. Um, and uh, my, my, favorite, enough, my, favorite piece of, my favorite piece of evidence there about his spending patterns that they were examining is that like any normal working guy, Every week or two, he'd go to the ATM machine, like the same ATM machine, and take out some spending money, like 200 bucks cash. Well, after the trial, he stopped. He never went to the ATM, like, ever again. He obviously didn't. And again, it it started to make me think about, like, sort of my own patterns and just behavior, wondering, like, what is that? What would that tell someone about, you know, about me or what what it told the FBI about Miguel Moya is he didn't need the cash from the ATM because he's had plenty of it. So, so that's why I love what McKenna says, like they proved the money part. So we had to sort of beat the, the Zen defense. We, we, we have to accept, uh, accept the money. Right. 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 Um, but, okay. but his defense was, 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 I mean, I, I love it. So Moya had a cousin, uh, Ray Perez, who was a Miami uh, uh, police officer uh, back in the eighties and ends up getting indicted in one of the Miami river cops cases, kind of a satellite case, the Miami river cops case, uh, for drug trafficking. And uh, the defense on the first day, the opening said is, yes, we have something to admit to the jury and the world that we're not proud of. Miguel Moya spent this money. And this was not money because he was a corrupt juror taking a bribe from William Sal. This was money that his corrupt cop cousin, Ray Perez, had made trafficking cocaine back in the 80s. And it just so happens, statute of limitations has just expired. (laughs) And finally, the family can start spending the ill-gotten gains from his cousin, who is a police officer's cocaine trafficking in the 1980s, not from him being a corrupt juror taking a payoff. It is, I say this all, it's one of those things that in Cincinnati or Phoenix would never fly. But like Jim DeFeedy says, in Miami, some of the jurors kind of look at each other Oh, okay. Oh, sure. That makes sense. You know, I can see that. Oh, That's sure. Why not? And they hung the jury. And and of course, the yeah. kicker of the whole story is that not only and we can prove that this happened because there is a safe that was installed in the floor of the Moya family's old house. So they get a warrant and they go to the old house where new people are living, and they take a jackhammer and they they they. Can tear you just the imagine? Floor. Can you imagine this, the pounding on the door of your house and in comes the feds. They say, we have a warrant. We're going to drill open your kitchen floor. Imagine these poor people standing there while the government is just drilling up the floor of their of their kitchen. But this is the kind of thing that would be absurd in a Carl Hyacin novel. You wouldn't believe it. It's unbel- I, Honestly, you could do a six-part series on that trial. I mean, it really, it's it's so good. And then, okay, so the jury hangs. Um, he goes to trial number two. Trial second trials are always bad for the defense. They never go well. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to win a second trial, as we've seen in this series and many other cases. 
And of course, Moya goes down in trial number two and he gets 20 years. I mean, he gets the same sentence that Willie Falcone gets. Come on, 20 years for, for getting bribed seems like too much, no? He volunteered the 20 years. <laughs> okay. Judge King, Judge King picked right up on it and said, all right, they asked for it, you got it. Look, you know, uh, I think, I certainly think, and, and though they've never kind of said so to us, I certainly think that the feds expected that Moya would flip at that point and that he would become the chief witness against uh, Sal in, a, in, the, in what became 99-583 and probably could have gotten maybe if not a get out of jail free card, you know, uh, certainly wouldn't have done 18, 17 and a half, 18, whatever he ended up doing um, if he had agreed to testify. But it just goes to show you how frustrated the feds must have been at that point that they couldn't flip it and that he did serve all that time. And once again, I think it shows uh, you know, like Billy said, the one to two degrees of uh, Willie and Sal in this community that uh, that even at that point, uh, they had they, they reached far and wide into into, um, into into Miami. And I think Moya was scared. I, I think it exemplifies the, the term trial penalty is what I think it, it does. I mean, I, I just think that um, and I believe had he cooperated and, and his attorney says as much that he would have gotten no jail time. I, I really believe that. I mean, he could have gotten what two years, five years, something. But I, I believe it would have it would have amounted to, to to little to no jail time. I think the government was that anxious at that moment in time to nail Willie and Sal, and more importantly, to tie them somehow to the jury tampering. Which honestly, I think even in Moya's second trial, from what I recall, they weren't really able to do necessarily. It wasn't they. they, they the government still didn't really have an answer to the question of how did Willie and or Sal get to this guy and, and how ultimately was he paid off mm -hmm. and who was responsible for that? Nor do they know exactly how much he was paid. Uh, you know, they're, they, they managed to create some totals based on uh, uh, bank, uh, bank activity and so forth and purchases of things somewhere in the range of $500,000, but they were never able to put an exact number on it. And nobody was ever prosecuted on the other side for delivering the money or actually being involved in the, in the uh, commission of the, the, the bribe. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Marilyn Bonacea. So, you know, in my world, she's known as the villain of the case. Um, in watching the movie, I think she goes back what, and forth. What, 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 what side are you on again, David? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no. I, I'm on the side <laughs> of, um, you know, uh, um, <laughs> reasonable doubt, Billy. That's the side I'm, I'm on. Just, I, I'm on I the side of reasonable doubt. But you know, I, I couldn't tell if she was if she was the hero or the villain of the series. Um, and you speak to different people, and you get different different answers. Uh, Twitter seems to have quite a number of of answers about it. Um, if you see the way the cops got to her ledgers, to me, they're the villains. They made up this whole thing to get her stopped. Right? They say. She was speeding because it was raining out. She was under the speed limit, but because of the conditions, she was speeding. Then they say they smell marijuana. I mean, give me a break. Um, they, they do all of this, you know, machinations to get into her trunk and get to the ledgers. We know that they were making this up just to get the ledgers. And we sort of turn away and have a blind eye towards it. Um, are, are we OK with that? Well, I think that was heavily litigated, the suppression of that. Well, I'm sorry, it wasn't because Sal, uh, and again, I don't want to, I'm not a lawyer, but 
my understanding is that Sal was because he could not litigate that because he was not a party to the stock. It's not his car. So right. he has in, in what we call no standing to litigate it. Right. So she, you know, the right. bad stop is sort of ignored because right. she cooperates. Right. Um, and of course, they were the, the, the feds were tipped off that she was transporting these ledgers. That's how the stop happened. I mean, they, they knew that she was moving these ledgers from her home to the attorney's office. So this was something that they were tipped off to. And, and you're right, I, I think, you know, created some, uh, some pretext for that, for that stop. Um, uh, I, I think it's uh, Sergeant Fielder says, uh, says, uh, yes, we smelled uh, marijuana back when that was illegal. So I'm sure that is a, uh, that is one of those things, uh, one of the tools in the toolbox that is no longer available, perhaps, but uh, in a, in a, in a substantial way. But um yeah, I mean, look, it's that's the turning point of the whole story is once they get it, well, that and then being able to translate what is actually in those ledgers. Um, but, you know, Marilyn obviously preserved those ledgers because she believed that it was in protection for her uh, if she were to ever get in trouble. Um, but that was uh, that was the turning point of the case for sure. And uh, you're right, I guess through that that quirk of how it happened, uh, there was no standing to uh, to get those thrown out or suppressed. Like there was the effort to get the Lagorse ledgers uh, suppressed. I think it was Albert Krieger who told us, uh, maybe it didn't make the doc, but uh, so whenever Sal gets pulled over, Sal got arrested, all these cases, he keeps ledgers like he's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Like this guy has ledgers and ledgers and ledgers and geez, you know, if you're doing this kind of conduct, you know, why do you have these ledgers? But Sal is a businessman. And so, uh, you know, it's ultimately his, uh, the ledger, not his own, but Maryland's that took him down. I think this incident actually speaks to Alfred's earlier point that this, that studying this case and these cases, plural, I should say, uh, has been a bit of a, a law school education because who knew that you could kind of trim a weed and salvage the fruit from the poisonous tree. I mean, it, 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 that's, it, there's been a lot of those moments where our kind of cursory, you know, undergraduate understanding of, of the law and the constitution gets turned on its head when you realize what is in fact considered legal or constitutional. Right. It, you know, Alfred mentioned before that the defense lawyers were playing head games. I think it was much more the prosecutors who were um, doing the strong arm tactics. I mean, look at the whole incident with Sal's father and son. I mean, to me, and, and Billy did such a great job getting getting Pat to admit this. I mean, he admits on camera um, that he was using sort of, I think he said strong arm. I don't remember the exact expression. Hard, hardball, hard playing hardball. Hard ball. That was, he said, that was, that was me and the U.S. Attorney's Office playing hardball. I mean, that's an understatement, but at least I think you got a, a, a glimpse of what the prosecutors were doing. I mean, to threaten an 80-year-old father and a son with prosecution uh, in order to get somebody to plead guilty, just have your trial. I mean, what are you so afraid of? Try the case if you want to. Why do you have to threaten the father and son? And it didn't work. I mean, Sal, Sal called the bluff. I mean, for better or for worse, I, I would argue for worse, um, called the bluff and, and uh, the, the hardball did not work. It was a scorched earth tactic. I mean, all their tactics by that point in, in that stage of the, of the case were scorched earth. Um, it's a little disturbing to think that the US government would do what is tantamount to torturing your son or your father in front of you to get you to submit, which is essentially what this was kind of tantamount to doing if you, if you believe that. On the flip side of the coin, there was the belief on the part of 
the FBI, the DEA, the IRS, the DOJ, that Sal Magluta was public enemy number one. That was their perception. That was their stance. And that's what was dictating their tactics. They also believed that he had somehow single-handedly uh, tainted the, you know, and corrupted the entirety of the criminal justice system. Lawyers being arrested, uh, uh, law enforcement having been paid off, uh, prison guards, uh, uh, and now uh, jurors, that, that there was a real effort to make an example out of him. I would say in which case, if that's your intent, then make an example out of him. I you know, leave his family uh, uh, alone. Uh, as Ed Chohat says, I we're just waiting for them to charge the parrot, you know, and the dog. Great line. Uh, Such next a great line. In, in this case. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I can see, I can see the perspectives from, from either side uh, here. I think that, again, if you are a criminal, if you're responsible for breaking the law, I would like to see, ideally, for, for me to feel like the criminal justice system is truly functioning, I'd like to see the government make their case beyond a reasonable doubt against the, the defendant against the alleged criminal. I, I, I agree with that. I think they should do it fairly. Um, and so that's, that's the question. Um, the other, you know, there were so many other head games and, and strong arm tactics used. One of them that I don't think gets enough uh, play, you guys mentioned it, is the security just getting into the courtroom. Now, people might not think that's a big deal, but it does send a message to the jury about what's going on here. Um, I mean, it was unprecedented security to get in. Alfred, I think you went to some of the 99 trial, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, this is uh, 99583. This trial is, I think, May of 2002, uh, uh, I was going. So I'm about 21, 22 at the time. Um, and I went with our, our third partner, David Sipkin, and I went down just to watch some of the trial. In fact, the day that we went was the day that Tony Posada's wife was testifying about uh, going out to her car and starting the the van in the morning and it blowing up and she was furious. I mean, I, you know, just the, the look that she gave to the, to, to Falco, to Magluta rather, which she had, uh, which she had, uh, it was, it was noticed throughout the courtroom. But I, I remember going in, you had to present your driver's license. The jury, first of all, was sequestered and anonymous. Uh, and that trial went on for months and months. These jurors living in a hotel uh, and, and, and totally anonymous to get into the courtroom. You had to present your driver's license which is unheard of uh, to walk into a public uh, courtroom in the United States after show some, and it was recorded. You showed your driver's license. They recorded who was coming in, who was coming out. And it was in uh, a ledger. It, actually, there was a ledger. Yeah, they, had a ledger. They, had, they did. They had a ledger <laughs> yeah. book. And uh, yeah. I remember during one break, Dave and I had, had walked out or maybe it was lunch. I think it might've been lunchtime and court had adjourned and we're standing in the, the lobby and we're waiting for the elevators and the elevator doors open. Dave and I get on and behind us, the prosecution team gets on. And so Dave and I are, and some agents, Dave and I are all of a sudden on the elevator with Pat Sullivan and, 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 and a bunch of agents. And, you know, we're 22 years old and what are we doing at this trial? And, you know, what are we saying? So Pat turns to us at one point, and it's a long ride down. I think it might've been on the 12th. I forget what floor it was on, but we had enough time in the elevator going down. Pat turns to Dave and I says, oh, are you guys uh, law school students? And I look at him and I just go, no. <laughs> and uh, I didn't say anything else. And there was just a long silence. Well, I didn't know how to explain what our interest but, was there. <laughs> no, but also you and Dave, when you went into the courtroom, you sat behind the defense. That's right. 
That's right. We didn't really know the protocol. We sat on the defense side because I was because I was trying like a wedding. You have to pick what side you're on. Exactly. And and we had gone there. One of the reasons that we had become so familiar with this case, I've told the story a few times, but I've been hearing the story since I was in eighth grade because uh, I was in eighth grade, 1991. And my best friend at the time, Joe Schuster, his father, Neil, was one of Sal's uh, attorneys uh, very early on in the first case and then became one More of the conflicts. trial attorneys in the More second. conflicts. So, uh, so I had gone and sat beside, well, there's Neil in the courtroom. I'm just going to sit on the side. He's on. That's all. I didn't think anything of it. But uh, Pat certainly took notice of Dave and I there that day. And we certainly didn't feel like we could say we were documentary filmmakers at the time or anything. So we just uh, just said no. And I, I, they must have checked our driver's license when we left that day. They, they sure. definitely ran you uh, that night. They <laughs> ran you and Dave and, and, and saw your record. Um, so despite all of that. Oh, by, by the way, I'm sorry. For the record, for the record, that's David Sipkin, our our third partner at Rack and Tour, who executive produced and edited a Cocaine Cowboys: The Kings of Miami. And it was awesome editing. Um, and and Dave's great. And and despite all the security, strong arm tactics, everything else, Sal wins again. <laughs> and no jury was bribed this time. I mean, he is found not guilty of all the murders. He is found guilty of eight checks going to his lawyers, but. But I mean, it's a, this was a murder case, I think, as Richard Clue, one of the lawyers says, this was a murder case and he walks on the murders. It was an enormous victory. Everybody thought initially. Um, it turns out not so much because as Billy talked about, there's this trial tax. And in, in, in Sal's case, um, even though Willie gets ultimately 20 years, Sal gets 200 years um, and is sentenced based on acquitted conduct. One of the things that most people don't understand. Like if you ask my mom, can you be sentenced uh, for something you've been found not guilty of? She would say, of course not. And that's what 99% of people would say. Um, in this case, we learn, no, uh, the Supreme Court has said in a case called Watts that you can be sentenced even for things that you've been found not guilty of. That can't be right. That can't be fair. Can it, Billy? I mean, we're going to allow that? Well, first, to your point, there was no jury shenanigans. This was an anonymous and sequestered jury. Uh, from the very beginning, from voir dire. And so there was no jury shenanigans. This jury considered the evidence uh, and found and, and acquitted Sal of the vast majority of the crimes, including ones you would argue are the most significant. If, if there are murder charges in an indictment, you would say this is a murder case. You wouldn't say we're worried about money laundering. You're saying we're worried about these three uh, witness tampering charges, which are the homicides, which would have gotten Sal you know, three, three lifetimes, uh, essentially, in, in prison. Um, when he is uh, convicted of the of writing eight checks, he's also acquitted, I should say, of the cash money laundering as well. And all that ledger money that was moving uh, all around town, um, seven plus million dollars in cash alone in the Maryland Bonachea ledgers. Um, he was only convicted of writing these eight checks from the Bank of Israel to his attorneys to pay for his defense. And what he got was 20 years per check, not uh, concurrent, but uh, I think the, the attorneys would have said it was rather unprecedented to, to hear uh, a consecutive uh, sentence on, on that because the judge was able to consider um, acquitted conduct, which I would say people ask this question a lot. What was the most surprising thing that you learned working on this project? Or, and I'd say that was it. I'd say that flies in the face of everything we understand from elementary school forward, you know, from civics classes through present day about our mythological, wonderful criminal justice system. 
the idea innocent until proven guilty. And once proven guilty by a jury of your peers, you are sentenced and punished for the crimes that you were convicted of, not for those that you were acquitted of. Why have a trial at all then? Why waste, why waste the jury's time? And, and I think Sal's, uh, uh, attorneys articulate it quite effectively. They basically say to, to believe that Sal deserves that, uh, sentence based on the crimes for which he was convicted. Not what you think he did or not what we quote unquote, we all know he did or, or what the, the, the media claims or the government claims that he did, but what they actually proved beyond a reasonable doubt, um, that he's worse than Al Capone. Um, because much like Al Capone, um, he, uh, Al Capone, who was never convicted of murder, of racketeering, of gambling, of, 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 uh, you know, uh, rum running, uh, he was convicted of tax evasion. He was sentenced to 10 years in Alcatraz, served out about eight and retires to a mansion in Palm Island in Miami Beach, where he dies of syphilis because Miami. And, uh, that's, you know, um, Meanwhile, Sal is serving 200 years under a mountain in Florence, Colorado, in the Alcatraz of the Rockies, uh, with the most violent offenders in the history of, of federal jurisprudence, of terrorists, uh, in fact. And is that the most just outcome, considering how this actually did shake out? Um, and it's, I think it's a tough argument to make. And, and, and as such, you have a bipartisan effort in the Senate. You have Republicans and Democratic senators who are sponsoring a, a bill to explicitly uh, outlaw uh, uh, the the effort, uh, the ability of judges to to sentence on acquitted conduct. See, Billy, you asked me before what side I was on. I think you're now on my side. I mean, that was <laughs> I think you're you've joined the good side here, and and that was a beautiful listen. That was beautiful. I just I I just listen. I want it to be I want it to be the justice system that we all believe that it is. I want it to be the justice system that we are taught that it is. I want it to be I want it to be fundamentally fair. I I would rather see uh, uh, the guilty go free than than one innocent person suffer. Uh, one unjust day in, in, in prison. And I think that Sal Magluta was convicted of crimes. There's no doubt about that. He owes a debt to society because of that. But I think we also have to be fundamentally just and fair in meeting out uh, a punishment. So let's talk about that punishment. And Alfred, I'll turn to you on the punishment because, because Billy mentioned that he's in Florence under the mountain in the supermax. I mean, can you tell us from from speaking to Sal and the family what those conditions are like? Well, they're just horrendous. Um, you know, twenty three hours a day in your cell, uh, recreate. You know, all meals uh, served through a slot door, uh, limited human contact. If torture. any, a torture, um, and uh, you know, uh, a very short recreation period. Uh, very limited contact with the outside world. I mean, Sal is in is uh, was in uh, uh, Marion, uh, another terrible federal penitentiary, um, and uh, in his cell with the cellmate, there was a cell uh, there was a cellular phone found, and so that's why he eventually uh, got transferred to Florence. I think he's actually been back and forth a couple times now, um, but it's uh, it's it's torture. Sixty Minutes has done a, has done a, a couple pieces on on Florence, Colorado, uh, on the on the supermax prison and and. Its effect on on human beings. Amnesty International has talked about it. So there's there's been there's been a lot of reporting on it. Uh, Marshall Project as well. But um, you know it continues to um, 
to exist, obviously, uh, you know, as a place to, to put our, our worst people. El Chapo's out there now, too, obviously. Um, so, you know, I, but I, I would like to go back for a second. I, David, I'd, I'd like maybe just for the benefit of the audience, actually for my benefit more than anything else, I'd like to understand the Supreme Court decision on acquitted conduct. Can you, in a nutshell, and I'm sorry to turn the tables and interview you here, but how did the Supreme Court, first of all, what, what year is this case? What's the makeup of the court? And, and what is the, what is the verdict? What is the justification for, for this, for the, for this nuance of the, of the law? Yeah, it was a decision back in the in the mid '90s, um, and and it was a very um, split decision. I believe it was a five four decision. Um, and what the court said is, listen, at sentencing, things are aren't decided beyond a reasonable doubt; they're decided by a preponderance of the evidence. So so judges only need to find you know by fifty point oh one percent that something happened, not beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if that is found at sentencing by a judge, um, that's enough to uh, increase someone's sentence so long as it's not above the statutory maximum. So how did the judge get around in this case? She said, well, for each count, the statutory maximum is 20 years, and I'm just going to stack them uh, as high as I can get. So so that's that's the just, you know, I don't agree with it, but that's the Supreme Court. So why, why is the judge why is the judge doing any fact finding? Didn't the jury do that already? Why, why is there any preponderance or beyond a reason? Why is there any standard of proof for the judge at that point? The jury told the judge what the what the defendant's guilty of. So so you see, so you guys should be lawyers because that has been exactly the challenge to the Supreme Court case called Watts in the years since. And a lot of the justices have said, you know, we should reexamine this. Um, and, and Congress, of course, has taken it up, as you say, and, and the Supreme Court, uh, in a number of opinions, even Scalia before his death said, we should reexamine this issue. This doesn't, this isn't right. And, and it never has, there, it certs never been granted. The Supreme Court has never taken it. Um, but, but there's been obviously of all the Supreme Court cases that are currently good law, even more than, than, uh, all the, all the crazy criticism of Roe, this case has been criticized by the right and left. I mean, it is, it is roundly considered the worst uh, Supreme Court case that's currently good law um, across the board by both sides. Just to take a contrarian position here on it, uh, uh, you know, obviously there's a particularly from the criminal defense bar, uh, a lot of consternation over the years about mandatory minimums and tying judges' hands and, you know, we should give judges more discretion. That's always been, I think, kind of the position of the criminal defense uh, uh, bar when it comes to mandatory minimums. But here's a case, obviously, where the judge's discretion uh, oversteps as far as, I guess, the criminal defense bar is concerned. And I would th- I would agree with that. But it, it basically, this is too much discretion for a judge, I suppose, is the position. Well, right. I think we're typically okay with discretion of a court when there's a plea of guilty and there has to be some fact finding by the judge at a sentencing where there's no jury, as Billy mentioned, but where there has been fact finding, where the jury has come out and said, we find that they haven't proven their case on X, Y, and Z. It it just strikes the wrong way. It's fun. It sounds fundamentally un-American, I think, to anybody who you nine out of 10 people on the street would say that. Right. And, and there, by the way, there used to be a whole line of cases where the jury would say, we're not going to recommend death, you know, in death penalty right. cases. And then the judge could overrule that. And the Supreme Court said, no more of that. We're not going to allow that anymore. In a lot of ways, this is the same thing, right? So, so where a jury says, we're not going to find that, that Sal committed these murders. And the judge says, no, 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 I am going to find it. Um, it, it, it just, it, I think that's the problem with Watts and, and what happened here. And so, 
Now we're left with Sal serving this long sentence. I know he started this IG page, Instagram page, his family did. And uh, he, he's he's making a push, I think, through a motion for compassionate release. I, I'm not sure. Do you guys cover that in the, at the end of the movie? I don't remember if you cover the compassionate release stuff. No, no but my understanding is that my understanding is that in the Southern District of Florida, that I think almost 20% of those have been granted. I think one in five have been granted uh, the compassionate release uh, motions. I think we are one of the districts that has the highest amount of, of motions like that granted. Um, obviously, this one is is pending, so I guess we'll find out. But, uh, you know, if statistics uh, point the way, uh, it, it seems like Magluta would have a better chance in this district than any other, uh, uh, at least according to the latest stats. And the way that it shakes out is that ultimately Willie pled guilty to, I believe, money laundering charges. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So, so, so similar crimes to what Sal was ultimately convicted and sentenced for. And he, as you pointed out, David, uh, was sent, got 20 years, served about 17 or 18 uh, of those. And so if you're going to talk about, you know, has Sal paid his debt to society? Is he an ongoing threat? Uh, you know, I would say, you have to say no more so than Willie, who is out and enjoying his retirement uh, right now. So you guys are making the movie. You've, you've covered Willie's brother um, sort of being on the lamb and not getting caught. And then, I mean, it must have happened during while you guys were making the movie that they catch him, right? I mean, you guys must have fallen out of your chair. It happened during an interview. Tell, Bill, tell, me, tell the story. We're rolling <laughs> the, ca- the, camera, the camera was rolling and it actually for a time in the rough cut of episode six, we actually use the footage. We're interviewing Bobby Wells, who was hired on as a young associate for Albert Krieger on the, essentially on the eve of Willie and Sal's first trial um, in uh, 91, 60, 60, in, in, in 94, 95, I think he comes on. And we're interviewing Bobby Wells in a studio and I get to a question and I say something, I set it up with, and of course there is still a fugitive in this case, one of the uh, co-conspirators in the, or alleged co-conspirators in the original indictment, uh, Willie's younger brother, Gustavo Tabby Falcone, who has been gone and on the run for 27 years. And from the green room of the studio, you hear Alfred yell, they got him. <laughs> you can almost hear like, hamster the squeak of the hamster wheel in my brain just like kind of like just and i'm like i'm sorry what alfred's like yeah they just the marshals just picked him up in Kissimmee, orlando this morning and bobby wells i'll be like his jaw just hits floor, and we're all just like i'm sorry what the hell are you talking about and it just stops the whole interview just stops we all get up walk into the green room where Alfred is on the computer. And there was the news of Tabby and his wife and his son and his daughter, all of whom had disappeared uh, in 91, actually disappeared in 91, just as the secret indictment was you know, going to be released. And they were going to go all over town and start to gather up the, uh, the defendants. They took off and they disappeared for 27 Years, the scuttlebutt, you know, the cheese on the streets of Miami always was obviously that they jumped on a jet and skipped the country and were in Spain or Colombia or somewhere. That was always the assumption. (laughs) Yeah, how do you disappear to Epcot for 27 years? (laughs) Well, how did they catch him? How did they get him? 
there was a sketch artist uh, who works at the Miami-Dade Police Department named Samantha Steinberg, who apparently had seen us talk about this case or this project and went and checked the last time they updated. She had done, I think, a sketch for America's Most Wanted, one of the age progression ones uh, regarding Tabby. And she said, well, let me just go and update it. And she started looking through driver's licenses. I guess there's some database where she could kind of match faces or some sort. And she came across one that she thought looked, she's like, wow. She wow. started staring at his face and she's like, this looks like, and it was her um, research basically and abilities that, uh, that ended up uh, tipping off the marshals. So as you guys are, are really to blame for it all. No, no, <laughs> no. I wouldn't say that. No, no, no. Um, you know, it's too bad Tabby didn't go to trial. I mean, we would have all been sitting in the courtroom. How great would that have been for, for the series? Well, we went to the, uh, we yeah. went to his arraignment and it was like, uh, you know, it was uh, old home week. A lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, the reunions reporters. Yeah. yeah. It was a reunion for a lot of people. It seemed a lot of agents uh, were there and uh, was the feed there. Was the feed there? Uh, do you remember seeing? He wasn't I remember big, seeing a bunch of TV so, people. Yeah, yeah I don't know because that. Defeaty covered it extensively, but I don't know that he was in in the courtroom. I will say that you know I I FaceTimed with Tabby's wife when they when they first came home. Uh, Tabby obviously was in custody. She was reunited with her family for the first time in twenty seven years. From you know her 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 younger brother uh, Pedro Rosello. Uh, Peggy describes it. Um, really what his parents went through, um, you know, and they, they both passed away while she was gone. And he, he described his parents as he's like, you know, when you're waiting, you know, your kids are out at night and you stay up and you wait for them to come home safely. He's like, that was my parents for 25 years, wow. you know, like waiting for that, waiting for her to come home. And she never and their grandchildren never did in their lifetimes, unfortunately. Um, and so she looked relieved. I mean, she looked thrilled. I mean, just smile from ear to ear, reunited with her family. Uh, I can't even imagine the extraordinary anxiety and stress and pressure of living on the lamb like that for 27 years. I mean, it's just, I mean, that what that life and lifestyle must have been like, and especially for the children growing up that way, they were bare, they were not double digits. They were like seven, eight, nine years old when, when they, when they went on the run and it just must be an extraordinarily stressful, uh, life through no fault of, of, of their own, their dad, you know, Tabby was the only fugitive in the case the, the wife wasn't, wasn't indicted. The children obviously were innocent. So just an incredible, but, but the, 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 I, someone describes it in the documentary as he almost had a sense of relief. I think he did. He was ready to face the music and he pled guilty and he's doing his time. And, and, you know, that's not the only guy who, who got, in, got caught and is in jail. Now, Peggy, after the interview, gets arrested. I mean, unbelievable. You know, it, it, you can't make this stuff. Unbelievable up. spoiler alert, David. Jesus. I mean, unbelievable well, like spoiler I said, people alert. Better watch the, people, I hope people have watched by now. <laughs> Me too. My, my whole world, all the criminal defense lawyers, everybody binged it. Uh, you know, in the last couple of days, everybody's been texting and emailing. Um, we've... We, my world, the people who will be listening to this podcast, have all watched it. Really. All right, um, all right, fair enough. So, so I, I, we, this has been great, and and thank you guys for doing this. Let me ask one last question for each of you. What you know, this has been obviously, I think, um, the trial, the biggest trial in Miami federal court history, um, maybe one of the biggest in federal court history in the country. Um, 
What, what are the long-term ramifications of a case like this? I mean, it really, for me at least, you used to hear the old stories of criminal defense lawyers and prosecutors having a beer at the end of the day. There was old Sally Russell's on Flagler. That's where everybody used to go. Um, this case really stopped that. I mean, it has been the animosity between the government and defense lawyers from this case has been um, really crazy. Things are starting to cool off uh, all these years later, and we're starting to see some uh, friendships again. But for a long time, it was it was really um, awful. I think. Um, what else have you guys thought of in terms of the of the effects of this case? Well, first of all, it's unbelievable uh, to consider this case to be one of the biggest, even in the Southern District. I mean, we tried a head of state here. We tried Manuel Noriega here, uh, which is a, a pretty uh, unique uh, case in American history. But uh, but I think you're right. I, you know, this was around the time where things started changing in the 90s. And, and this goes back to the, the question of how lawyers get paid and, you know, this issue of, of fees. And we didn't really kind of get into a lot of this. But, you know, I think that that while the rules were still being made um, during this era, there was a lot of there was a lot of tension, and there obviously, and a lot of consternation on the part of the criminal defense bar, who felt that they were under attack for just doing their jobs or constitutionally protected jobs that they should be able to make a living and get paid uh, uh, for their work. Um, you know, and and there was there was uh, we've certainly heard it from a lot of people. I think that that's a reason ultimately why some of the defense attorneys did not want to participate and do interviews uh, uh, in the documentary. And yeah. that tension we've heard about, uh, and, and everybody points to this case as being, as, as being the, the, the turning point at which trust and relationships and friendships broke down over. Um, and so I think that, you know, the ultimate result of that is perhaps, a, a, you know, I, I think that a justice system probably works better when you guys, when both sides can talk to one another and work things out and, 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 you know, have a, a, a civil um, operating criminal defense system uh, between prosecutors and defense attorneys who have to work together over and over and over again. So uh, I think it's unfortunate that it happened. I think that, though, you know, there's been some cases, again, we didn't talk about it, but certainly the Ben Cuny case, I think, probably uh, set some bright line guideposts, uh, you know, in terms of how um, fees are treated and how, uh, you know, lawyers get paid. So perhaps that that issue at least uh, uh, might have been, been put to bed a bit. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And uh, you're right. I mean, it seems to have been a cold war that has enveloped the, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Criminal Defense Bar in South Florida for, you know, what, almost 20 years now as a result of this. So uh, hopefully kind of us rehashing it and kind of uh, uh, telling the story from start to finish might, uh, might put kind of a fine, fine tip on it, be able to, uh, to, to move forward at this point. It's an adversarial system. I don't think it has to be quite this antagonistic. And I think that was maybe this case was that was that shift, that line in the sand. Um, and I think Alfred's right. I think the the it's the ultimately it's justice and it's the defendants and their rights and their ability to have a, a just outcome that are the victims here. Uh, I, I think it probably, you know, to, to an extent, I don't want to compare it to the, the WWE, but some of trial law and these hearings are, are performative, but then to be able to kind of step outside the ring, so to speak, and to be able to talk as human beings and say, what can we do to come up with the most just outcome here? But for the, for the uh, prosecution to, to see uh, defense, criminal defense attorneys, not simply as advocates for their client. And in fact, 
constitutionally uh, uh, mandated advocates for their clients, but as adversaries and antagonists in and of themselves, as enemies, that the, the criminal defense attorneys are enemies rather than advocates for their clients, I think creates uh, a toxicity that, that, that rots away at, at, at the criminal justice system. So, Billy, I love the shirt. For those who are just listening, um, you have a Seahawk shirt on. I need one of those shirts. I need a Seahawk shirt um, at the end of this. Um, I love the, okay. love it. I'd like to say I found it in, in Sal's uh, storage <laughs> unit, but but I but I didn't I I did not. I would not have. We did. We only scanned things and, and digitized them. All we we left. We put all of everything back in uh, where we where more or less where we found it. Um, there was no Dewey Decimal System or anything in there, but uh, we left everything where we found. No, no, this was a this was a custom job. Uh, I, I might, I might know, uh, I might know where where I could find one for you. Uh, though, I want to thank the boys, Los Muchachos of of Miami, for doing this and uh, for for backing the podcast. It's been a lot of fun today, and um, uh, I'm looking forward to episode seven and eight of uh, you know of the story because there's a lot more to tell about this thing. Yeah, season two. <laughs> season two. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. That was really a lot of fun. We could have discussed these cases for many, many hours. And Billy and Alfred should be lawyers in another life, the way they know the law, know uh, the cases and what happened. Um, by the way, Roy Black and Marty Weinberg, two of the lead lawyers in the Willie and Sal case, were interviewed in season one about different cases, but you might be interested in going back and listening to them uh, I think you'll find their interviews really interesting as well. Um, so we've done defense lawyers, we've done judges, now we've done movie makers. Don't worry, we're gonna get back to defense lawyers in season four, which we're preparing for now. But this was a whole lot of fun. Please send me your feedback about the podcast. Please uh, subscribe and like it if you can and uh, leave comments. And I look forward to seeing you all in season four. Uh, go watch. Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami, if you haven't yet. Talk to you soon. Thanks.